0: It's good to be with you. My name is Matt Kerber. I'm a pastor at City Reform. Um, I believe we're dismissing our children for Children's Church Now, a place where they can learn. Uh, And uh, our goal in Children's Church is to help them to learn about church so they can engage and come and be uh, active participants in the entirety of the service. Um, We're moving through a uh, a book of the Bible called Nehemiah. And this week is the uh, uh, second part of a two-part series in which we think about the ways in which the things Nehemiah is doing very practically engages with the needs of people around him. And we come to the book of Nehemiah, we have several challenges. First of all, it was written a long time ago. It deals with the people that live in a a very different time and a place, a a Middle Eastern agrarian culture, a, a people who had recently come back from years of bondage and exile and we're beginning to rebuild their country and rebuild their city. One of the other challenges we have is that the book of Nehemiah is written before the cross of Christ. The the covenant God has with his people is a gracious covenant as is ours. God's dealing with them on terms of grace but the people of God lived differently before the cross. They were a people that had both a spiritual and a civil reality all bound up together Israel was both church and state and the promises God had for his people dealt specifically with the land that they lived in their physical boundaries and the protection of them as a geographic people today on the other side of the cross the uh, church of Jesus Christ is not just one family uh, the, the descendants of Abraham or the Jewish people but it's all peoples, all of the nations it's not just one geographic physical nation but it spreads throughout the earth so we face some of these challenges as we come to it often when we read the book of Nehemiah we think quickly about how the principles of rebuilding apply to what we do as a church they're very good principles Nehemiah worked hard, he faced opposition, he persevered In other words, we can spiritualize what happens in Nehemiah appropriately. But in this week and last week, we're pausing to remember that spiritualizing the message is not the entirety of the message. Nehemiah is doing an actual thing for actual people. He is building the city, the walls and the gates, and he has a a specific purpose for it. We want to ask, what does that look like for us? Last week, we began to think of the first way in which Nehemiah was concerned, essentially, for the the social well-being of the people around him, his people. He was concerned for their security. He was concerned that they had a safe city to live in. And I made the argument that as God's people, we too bear the burden of the security of others. Not just our own, which is our first way of thinking about it, but we bear the burden of the security of others in our city. We are people committed to the dignity of life, moving from unborn children to the elderly, and we know the burden of security for our neighbors often calls us to put ourselves at risk, just as Nehemiah did. On Memorial Day weekend, we were reminded, uh, for those uh, who have uh, uh, put themselves in harm's way as soldiers, uh, sometimes making the ultimate sacrifice of their life. We thought about this issue of security. Uh, but as we come to the text today, we see, again, a, what we might call a social concern, but it's a very different type of one, isn't it? In, in this passage, Nehemiah is confronted with people who are starving. They don't have enough to eat. And he has to interpret what's happening and build a response to it. These are important issues for us as we think about our involvement in the world and in our city we are called to be people who think about the wide range of needs of our neighbors and engage in ways that reflect the grace of the gospel and the good news of God's coming kingdom. I'm going to read the passage. We'll begin uh, just with a couple paragra- a couple verses that remind us of the sort of continuity from last week, Nehemiah's sacrificial call to care for his neighbors, and uh, then i will again refer uh, this is God's word, and you'll affirm that with me. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 15 and then continuing verses 23 through 519. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Chapter 5, verse 1, now there arose a great outcry of the people and of the wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as our children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have, brought ba- have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you are doing is not good. Are you not to walk in fear of our God to prevent the taunts of, our, of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest." "'Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, "'and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you've been exacting from them.' "'Then they said, "'We will restore these and require nothing from them. "'We will do as you say,' and I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. "'I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, "'So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his this promise.' So maybe he's shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, several years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were laid before me, who were before me, laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, beside those who came to us from the nations and were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I have done this people this is the word of the Lord the topic that we are summarizing as we think of this passage is one of poverty it's a word that can mean different things to different people and applied in different contexts. for some of you it may be a word that very much describes your past and for some of you it may very much describe your present Some of us are maybe now in or have been in a season of, we might say, voluntary poverty where in the pursuit of advanced training or another degree, we uh, submit ourselves to the meager pay of a a graduate assistant or something like that uh, in the hopes of a better future another time. Poverty is something that we experience in different times in different ways, but it is something that has long been an important concern of the church. Down through the history of the Christian church, uh, this has been addressed as a matter of great importance. Uh, In the New Testament, the concern for the poor among them and the poor beyond them was a matter that the New Testament church thought about often. And throughout the history of the church, down through the Reformation, the church at its best has been concerned about biblical truth and biblical action in love to neighbors. But poverty is something that we can easily invo- avoid if we want. It's uncomfortable, it's difficult, and sometimes it requires from us sacrificial response. I think of my own life to illustrate some of these principles. I grew up in a small town, central Pennsylvania, Rust Belt community. My family moved there when I was young in 1980, and every year after that, the economy has shrunk just a little bit unemployment got greater. In in small town life, uh, the lines between uh, the well-off and the not-so-well-off are not as clearly established. Clearfield, Pennsylvania was not a town known for great uh, ethnic diversity, but it it was a town of real economic diversity. Uh, The bus that I rode to school in middle school had two main stops on it. One was in the housing plan where I lived. My father was a professional, and most of my neighbors were. Our housing stop was a house uh, not so affectionately known to our neighbors as being a place for rich kids. The other housing stop on our bus was a housing project for some of the poorest people in our community. And many times the kids would engage well and sometimes there would be hostility. I remember a particular incident. It was brought to my mind this past week as I thought of this passage a time in which hostilities broke out between our two groups. I still to this day don't remember exactly what I said, but we were being taunted as rich kids, and I suppose, relatively speaking, we may have been. And I said something back to one of the kids about his poverty. And as he exited the bus, he punched me in the face. And I realized in that moment it wasn't a joke. It wasn't a harmless insult. And as the immediate shame of the humiliation wore off and I walked home after school, I realized that I deserved it. I'd crossed the line that I shouldn't have crossed. I had spoken of something that was deeply insulting in a way that made light of it. And I still feel shame to this day. The passage we look at today invites us to consider the importance of our response to poverty. I want to say three things about it as we look at the passage. This passage is a window into considering the many things the Bible says about the complex realities of poverty. It's also one that reminds us that poverty is insulting. In in the words of uh, one of my favorite authors, Randy Neighbors, poverty is insulting to those who experience it. It's difficult, it brings shame, and if we're not careful, we can add to it in our thoughtless involvement or responses. The third and finally, we'll see the importance, the importance of a sacrificial response that shows the realities of God's gospel grace. These are the three things we'll look at. First of all, the complex realities of poverty. Uh, the Bible paints a picture of poverty that is very real and reflects the complex realities of the world around us. Uh, Tim Keller, who's an author and pastor, retired pastor from New York City, uh, wrote when he was working for our uh, missions agency in our country, wrote a book called *The Call of the Jericho Road*. In that book, he summarized three broad types of teaching in the Bible about poverty. Uh, The first is the Bible does teach that poverty can be a result of our own personal conduct and behavior. Uh, This is something that uh, many of you would know from personal experience. There are times in which bad decisions, uh, foolish investments, uh, uh, sometimes entwining with other personal weaknesses like addictions can bring about a, a situation of poverty. Uh, This is addressed honestly in the Bible. Proverbs 10.4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. And and we want to acknowledge this because this is part of the complex reality that we see. It's important as we talk about it, however, that we don't use this as a cause to dismiss our concern. Sometimes people are their own worst enemy. We know this, uh, again, from personal experience. Sometimes... The causes of poverty are bound up in broader patterns of behavior, and yet we know that God didn't deal with us according to our own weakness, but he dealt with us mercifully, graciously. He met us in a place when we were his enemies, and he brought us mercy. So as long as we view this as a doorway into engagement, it's a helpful and important thing to acknowledge. But if we were to stop there, we would miss the broad biblical teaching that recognizes a far more complex picture. Uh, The second thing uh, that, that we see in the Bible begins to show up more in this passage, and that is poverty is also a result of broader factors beyond anyone's control. In reality, these things are often intertwined in very complex ways in any one person's life. But outside circumstances can create situations where broad numbers of people experience poverty. Uh, We can think in our own experience how the stock market crash of 1929 led to a situation in which vast numbers of Americans were plunged into poverty. Well, these are some of the background circumstances of Nehemiah chapter 5. We see in verse 3 a reference to a famine. The people are starving, and one of the reasons is the background circumstances of a famine. Uh, secondly, we see in verse 4 a reference to the taxes of the king of Persia. If you've been with us for a while, you know this scenario is one in which uh, the king of Persia has sent the Jewish people back to their homeland. He's even empowered Nehemiah as governor to rebuild the city, and he's happy for them to have their temple, their ancestral practice, and their and the biblical worship that was given through Moses. He's fine with all that as long as they pay their taxes, right? Some things never change. Um, Policy of of governance in Persia, do what you want, pay the taxes. But the taxes were heavy. The third factor that we know from context that's not mentioned here is that the process of rebuilding the walls and the gates of Jerusalem must have put a great demand upon the people, the process has begun. We know it's happened with sacrificial effort, and it won't be completed till chapter 7. All of these things are in the background whenever the people cry out to Nehemiah, We don't have enough food to feed our families. But there's more going on as well. The third cause of poverty listed in the Bible is you know, the unjust and oppressive actions of others through individuals and systems. This is something the the Bible takes very seriously. There's a great deal of legislation written into the law of Moses. This is what would have been governing uh, God's people at this time. There's a great deal written in about how people were going to interact across their economic differences. People who were farmers were told that that when they were gleaning or harvesting, they had to leave a certain amount behind that the poor would have access to it. There were limitations on what you you could take from someone if you were lending them money. Is again, very much a part of this passage. And maybe most importantly, and this is a little hard for us to understand, living on the, you know, not as God's covenant people in Israel, every Israelite was meant to be guaranteed an inheritance in the land. They had their own property. The, the, the theory was, the, the, the biblical idea was, God was the great king who had all the land and he entrusted it to the people. And so one of the practices in, in this time for God's covenant people that was most offensive is when folks began to accumulate land that was meant to be the inheritance of others. Now, these are not always easy translations for us to make. This is a covenant people. This is a, a, a agrarian culture in the ancient Middle East a long time ago. And I have a lot more comments I can't read today about working through the law of Moses. But I think we can draw some some. Plain principles very quickly, and that is the occasion of vulnerability and poverty for these people caused by the famine, the construction, and the demands of empire was being used by some of their own brothers as a means to get rich. And we have this saying, we know this practice is, right, the rich get richer. Poverty means a loss of social leverage. It means a loss of control. And it's in these, in these circumstances that we can be rife for exploitation. But we see that exactly in this particular passage. What is uh, the cry of the people is, you know, we don't have enough to eat, and as a result, we're mortgaging our property. This was not supposed to happen. And as bad went to worse, they had to sell their own children into slavery. That's a terrible, terrible circumstance, particularly for a people who just recently knew the bondage of their captivity in Babylon. And you'll see that's the argument that Nehemiah makes for them. This must not be. But we also see this sort of haunting words. Uh, you know, our children are being sold into slavery, verse 5, but it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and and, uh, our vineyards so they're a a place of of vulnerability we recognize that all of these factors in their various ways can be present in the world today we live in places where individual responsibility, broad circumstances beyond our control and oppressive systems all combine and mix together in complex ways my argument for you today is that our starting point is to recognize with the Bible how complex these realities are, not to settle for simple answers, but to seek to engage in ways that reflect the complex reality of what, happened and in what is happening around us. Uh, the second thing we see, however, in the passage, we again can match into our, our own world, is we, can, we recognize the ways in which uh, poverty is in its very nature dehumanizing. And that is uh, not to say that someone who's poor is less than human. But the experience of poverty is one in which people are often either led to feel that way, to act that way, or caused to feel that way by others. It's all bound up together in ways that are concerning. We see this in the passage when we, when we see the people calling out to Nehemiah. Their, their children have been sold into slavery we can only begin to imagine how desperate their circumstances must have been to result in this. Imagine how desperate they must have been as they went back to the earthen jar and the, the back of their uh, little building and saw there was nothing left to eat. and The, the taxmen from the Persian king had come and taken the last that they had and they had already mortgaged everything. Can you imagine how desperate they must have been? In our world today, desperate people are, are often led to do desperate and dehumanizing things. At the end of last summer, Chrissy and I were on a mission trip in Bulgaria. Bulgaria is the, uh, the, the poorest country in the European Union, ravaged for decades by communism and many other oppressive systems, one after another, at times their, their poverty is deep. One of the things the missionaries there realized is that tragically, this was against this backdrop, Uh, many young women were being uh, conned or enticed into a life of prostitution. They were human trafficked out of their own country into the richer, wealthier uh, countries of the European Union where they would work in both illegal or legal brothels. Even the young women had a life expectancy of only a couple of years the poverty these people knew led to the dehumanizing condition of these women being treated as sex objects in ways that were so deadly and destructive to them. In the front of your bulletin, I have a, I have a, a quote from uh, Randy Neighbors. Randy Neighbors was a pastor in the PCA. Now he works uh, in uh, our, our denominational group helping to plant churches in low-income areas in our denomination. He grew up in the uh, in the projects of uh, New Jersey and knows firsthand how difficult it is. There's no doubt in my mind how harmful poverty is to people. Randy Neighbors writes: It's not only hurts to be hungry; it's demeaning and demoralizing to not have enough money to feed your kids, to pay or pay your rent. It's humiliating to try to explain to your spouse or your kids why you can't keep the water running and the lights on. It's a sad way of life to feel as if roaches, mice, and rats have more freedom than you do. It's this personal and biting experience with poverty that has led Randy to commit his life uh, to planting churches that minister among the poor and disciple people in the midst of their poverty. Our our own congregation is supporting a, a similar church in Jeanette, a church intentionally planted in the midst of people that are struggling. But there's more in this passage that shows the dehumanizing effects of poverty. Not only are people led to do desperate things, but even the way they are thought of is shaped by this. Notice carefully the words that they use when they're crying out to Nehemiah. There's a a plea here that's really haunting if you think about what they're saying. When they speak to Nehemiah, they list the, the, the absolute urgency of the situation they speak of not having enough grain. They speak of uh, uh, having to, to uh, mortgage the land in their fields. It culminates even in their children being sold away. And you notice what they say to them in verse five. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet our children are being sold because we're so desperate. Do you see what's being said here? In the midst of the desperate circumstances in which they find themselves, they're pleading with others. Would you not see us in our humanity? That we too are your brothers, your sisters. Our flesh is like yours. We're we're not all that different. Now again, we recognize often we encounter poverty today against many things that might make us visibly different. And yet, as we seek to engage in ways that show the grace and the mercy of God, what we're doing is saying something powerful about who people are and how they're made. That there's an inherent dignity and value being made in God's image that extends to all people, regardless of their income. We know in our own history at times, dehumanization has not been the result of poverty, but the cause. When I read these words, is our flesh not as your flesh, I'm reminded of some of the most powerful images of the civil rights movement. A testament to a time in our own country where the segregation or enslavement of many of our own people brought great prosperity to others. In 1968 or 69, Memphis sanitation workers went on strike They were protesting unjust, unsafe, and unfair working conditions. You may remember the images. They remain some of the most enduring of that age. African-American workers on strike marched the picket lines with signs that simply read, I am a man. A protest of their humanity in the face of powerful and brutal injustice well the third thing we see here however is Nehemiah's response what does he do? we see a couple of ways he responds uh, and they begin to set a model for us as we think about our own response and engagement and the first thing Nehemiah does is that he listens he hears them and he takes it seriously it is awfully easy not to do that. Nehemiah could have made any number of excuses he could have said you know I'm in the middle of something big right now if we don't get this wall built we are at the mercy of our enemies and we saw last week just how important it is to take seriously the burden of the security of our neighbors it's no small thing it's a serious thing and yet in the midst of that Nehemiah realized that there were there was no point protecting people if the people on the inside of the protection were starving to death In fact, it's likely that many of the people here, and they're listed as being from Judea, are the families of the workers who had come to Jerusalem to do this important thing. Nehemiah hears and he takes it seriously. And we too are called to be people who hear and take seriously. I think it's easy for us because many of the, the constructs of our modern life to not hear and listen to the needs of others around us. When I first moved to Pittsburgh, we moved to a neighborhood that was fairly blue-collar and a little transitional. If I had thought about what it meant to care for people in poverty, I would have thought first and foremost of some of my own neighbors, single mothers living in our block who were right around the poverty line, struggling to deal with certain practical things in their life. At one point in time, someone in our congregation uh, had a surprise money come in in a tax return. They handed me a check and said, Do something good with it. And two days later, our neighbors couldn't pay the mortgage. I had been empowered to help them. Other times, we've had immigrants come from overseas that struggle to get their, fir- their foot on the first rung of an employment ladder. Our neighborhood's been changing, it's been gentrifying. It's good for our property values. But, but increasingly, older owners have moved. They've sold for good money in some cases. The newer owners that are there tend to be much more upwardly mobile. And I've realized as I reflect on it that I can very easily not think about this. I can very easily find myself, just the the natural gravity of my life, movements, move me into people that are around people that are mostly like me. We can ignore it if we want. And yet we see in this passage the urgency of a response. I said in the beginning, the legacy of Christian concern for poverty around them is our spiritual legacy. It's the leg- legacy of the Reformation. It's the legacy of the early church. It's the legacy of renewal movements from the first and the second generation down through the ages. It's the legacy of the Scottish churches that in some cases are our direct ancestors who both walked out of their government owned buildings to protest government control and invested themselves deeply in the care of the poor in the industrialized Britain. It's our spiritual legacy. But Nehemiah emphasizes in this passage the great urgency of thinking through this carefully when we could easily forget. Look at the urgency he uses. He makes several arguments when he responds. He first listens, secondly he responds. Look with me at the arguments that he makes. In verse 6 it says he's very angry and he confronts those that were in authority, those that were using unjust practices to exploit those that were vulnerable and in need. He said, uh, he said, first of all, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations, but you even saw your brothers that they may be sold to us. So they were silent and could not think of a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Nehemiah believed that fearing God meant caring for the vulnerable among them and that the failure to do so caused these people to have a diminished witness. Are the nations taunting us, he said? Do do they practice what they preach, in other words? We have just gotten out of our bondage in Babylon. We're back here and we're putting each other in bondage. That's what he's arguing. And the conclusion is, how does this give witness to the nations? Sometimes I, I fear that Bible-believing churches are vulnerable to the same taunt. We can lose our spiritual heritage of concern for the poor and give the outward impression to others that we're only concerned about private spirituality. Our witness is diminished. The second part of this, however, is Godword. He makes the, uh, he confronts them with their challenge. He confronts them with the law of Moses, the commands of God upon them. They agree to it. And he says in verse 13, may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. And he goes on to talk about his own personal sacrifice, verse 15, because of the fear of God. And he closes with a prayer. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for my people. Nehemiah knows he will stand before God. The Bible tells us no amount of service or good works can ever earn our salvation. To affirm that would be to take a a shortcut through works righteousness that would destroy our faith. But the Bible also tells us that one of the primary ways in which Christians demonstrate their faith is by being merciful with others as God has been merciful with us. So much so that in Matthew 25, when Jesus wants to speak about the final judgment, he says, the way in which you'll know who my people are is how they cared for the needy among me. Treating them as if I was present there in their need. The final thing Nehemiah does, he, he hears, he responds, making these urgent pleas. The final thing he does, though, is both personal and sacrificial Now, Nehemiah, in many ways, is not like us. Again, we said the form of Israel is different, and he was a governor. As far as I know, the governor of Pennsylvania is not here today. If Tom Wolf is listening later on the internet, Tom, I urge you to be good and just and equitable in all your interactions. As a pastor, I don't tell you who to vote for or what policies to pursue. And yet, what we do as we think through the involvement, both on a local and on a regional level reflects our concern for others around us. It's a very real application that we can take. How do I conduct myself? How do I think about things in ways that promote the good and the flourishing of my neighbors? But it's the second part of what he does here, not necessarily as a governor, but what he does personally that I most want to focus on today. Nehemiah is... uh, 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 concerned about the well-being of his people and there's two parts of his response first of all what he doesn't do he doesn't demand the governor's allowance it's really interesting isn't it? he mentions it twice he mentions it in verse 14 he says neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor and in, in, in verse 18 He tells us that he provided for the table of his administrators, 150 of them, out of his own resources, not by demanding from the people. Look at what he says in verse 18. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds. This is for the 150 that gather at his table, the administrative court, and every 10 days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on this people. For Nehemiah, his concern for those around them in their need led him to engage sacrificially. How is God calling you to engage sacrificially? How is He calling you in your work, in in your choice of where you live, where you go to school, where you worship in church? How is he calling you in those places to demonstrate a concern for those around you in need? As a congregation, we've grown a lot in this area, and we can continue to grow. But our our deacons lead us in outward service to our city through partnerships with the Pittsburgh Project, with our uh, summer camp ministries, with our direct care for people in need. We do these things not because we have a condescending view of others, but because we know God has been merciful when He calls us to share with those in need. But don't lose sight of the fact that for Nehemiah, this is a sacrifice. If we give in to the uh, many of the models of life around us, we'll be led to think that the only thing that matters is your own economic advancement your own upwardly mobile movement to a better job and a better community and a better place. My inspiration in the church comes from those members among us who have committed their lives in service and where they live and in where they work and who they care for, throwing themselves into education, medical care and concern for those in need. Some of us do it that way. Some of us do it in our partnership through the church. However we do it, it's a sacrifice. And behind all these sacrifices, we remember that our call to be merciful must always flow from the deep and a binding recognition God has been merciful to us. If we really thought we made everything on our own, we would have a right to hoard it. But if we know all comes by grace, then we are called to be gracious. Gracious. And when we feel the difficulty and the challenge of sacrificially engaging with others in their need, we return again to the gospel of grace. The Jesus who calls us outward into love and service and care is the Jesus who is Lord of the universe, who promises to be with us, who went before us in a life of sacrifice and humility. Just as Nehemiah provided a table for his fellow workers at his own expense. We too have a Lord and Savior who provides for us all of our needs out of the riches of his own sacrificial care. Nehemiah each evening would invite those fellow workers around his table and instead of drawing from the nations, he blessed the nation. He had the resources and the ability to give sacrificially. And as those fellow workers came around the table, they would know that they were serving a truly great leader, one who was pouring himself out for them. Nehemiah, at his best, reminds us that we have a far greater king. On the other side of the cross, we follow a Lord and Savior who poured himself out for us, that we would have the full riches of heaven. And some of us experience the foretaste of that now, a a blessing in our life of material goods beyond what we would have imagined. God calls us to be generous. Many of us experience now the, the foretaste of the spiritual riches of heaven, the fellowship of the church, the presence of God, the renewing power of his spirit. Friends, you have been served and loved. As we close this uh, service today, we come to our master's table. We come as fellow servants. We come before us with a bounty of spiritual riches on this table. Not like Nehemiah where they had the animals and the wine and everything. Our, Our amounts are smaller, but the abundance of this meal is the abundance of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. All of the promises are yes and amen in him. Friends, would you come? As fellow workers, would you come committed to the purposes of God? Would you come with empty hands, receiving the grace and the mercy of God to empower you in your love for those around you? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would meet us today. We pray now that as we come to this table, the Lord's table, that we would, as fellow servants, eat and be filled, that we would be empowered And that we would be humbled as we remember the abundant mercy of the Lord Jesus. Meet us here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.